Well, good morning. We continue in our worship as we turn our attention to God's Word. And as you are turning to 1 Peter this morning, children are dismissed, four years old through fifth grade, uh, for kids' church. And they could be dismissed at this time. And as you are finding uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, this morning, uh, let's uh, look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we continue in our worship as we open your word together. I pray, Father, that you will help me as the one bringing this message to be faithful to your word, to communicate it clearly, O God. And may the things, O Lord, that you have uh, taught me, may I abide in them and may I be able to faithfully communicate them clearly. May those who are in the hearing of this message also respond to what you are saying. And Lord, may you accomplish your uh, will and your purpose in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come this morning to uh, the second section in Peter's first letter to believers who were scattered around the Roman Empire. Many of these first century believers were displaced due to rising persecution. And one of the questions I think that Peter is answering uh, his readers is this, how is the Christian the Christ follower to live in a world which is hostile, for the most part, to the gospel message and to those who bear it. He answers uh, in part in the first section that we looked at together in his letter that it's important for us to know who we are in Christ. He focuses on our salvation in Christ and what Christ has done to make us his very own. But in this second section of the letter that we're looking at today and over the next couple of weeks, he's answering the question specifically, how do I live then? If I'm in Christ and I know him personally as my Savior and as my Lord, and if he's redeemed me and my life and heart have been transformed by the grace of God, how am I to live? Well, Peter seems to emphasize in this second section that one of the ways that the Christian communicates the gospel by his or her lifestyle is seen in a life of submission, a life that gives testimony to Christ. And as he says in chapter 2 and verse 12, that such a life then can silence the critic and those who look at Christianity from the vantage point uh, that it is detrimental to individuals or to a society. Last time you'll recall we were together, we looked at uh, his words to us in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, where the believer in Christ is called and expected uh, to be in submission to the governing authorities or the powers that be. And today we're going to look at a, another relationship that we find ourselves in, and I'll explain it here in a moment, but that we're to be submissive as slaves or as servants in verses 18 through 20. But before you bristle 
or before you become upset or reject the text or this message, uh, it's important for us to understand the first century culture and context in which these inspired words of God had been penned. In, in verses uh, 18 through 20, Paul, uh, Peter is addressing the slave and the master relationship. Now, in the Roman culture, uh, slaves were commonplace. In fact, one estimate says that there were approximately 60 million who found themselves in the place of servitude. And I came across this interesting uh, insight from Wayne Grudem in his commentary on 1 Peter. He writes, It must be remembered that first century slaves were generally well-treated and were not unskilled laborers, but often managers, overseers, and trained members of various professions, such as doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, and skilled artisans. He goes on, there were extensive Roman uh, legislations regulating the treatment of slaves. They were normally paid for their services and could expect eventually to purchase their freedom. So it's a little bit different understanding than what we sometimes immediately comes to our mind when we hear the term a slave. And I'll say more about that word here uh, in a moment. But someone might ask the question, especially coming from uh, the 21st century, and maybe even people from centuries prior to us may have asked the question, if slavery with all its potential for evil uh, existed, why did they not call for slavery's eradication when they were writing these letters and penning these words? Well, let me suggest some things to think about in answering that question. First of all, you have to understand that this was the accepted culture of the day. Not saying that it makes it right, but 60 million slaves would indicate that this was widespread in the Roman Empire at this time. It also must be understood that when the Gospel writers and the New Testament writers were inspired by the Lord to write their instructions and their teachings concerning Christ, that slavery was not the foremost purpose that was being addressed in the gospel. In fact, the New Testament would indicate that both slave, slaved individuals and free individuals each come to God by way of the cross. There's no distinction of need nor of the blessings bestowed by God to all those who trust Christ and come to faith in Him and are saved. In fact, both a slave and a person who is in a position of master, if they were in Christ, were part of God's church, God's family, and God's kingdom. In fact, I know you had you open to 1 Peter, but turn back a couple pages in your New Testament to Galatians chapter 3. Because interestingly, Paul had a lot to say about this topic of uh, slaves uh, in his day. And Paul made this great declaration which answers the question, how does one become a child of God? How is one made right with God? 
And we know that the rest of the New Testament would indicate to you and me and to, to the world that might ask that question, it's not by works. It's not by heritage. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by some ritual or rite that's bestowed upon us or done to us through the avenue of the church. But Paul says here in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, these words, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How do you become a child of God? How do you become right with God? Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in His death, burial, and resurrection for you as one who's separated from God by virtue of your sin. Christ died for you that you may be made right with God. And the imagery that Paul continues to use here in verse 27 is, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And he's using the imagery here of baptism to be immersed into Christ. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you become immersed in Him. And you become, if you would, clothed with Him. So that God sees you no longer in your sin, which has been forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ, but He sees you clothed in the righteousness and in the holiness of Christ. He sees you as He sees His only Son. And notice this in verse 28. He says here, if you are in Christ, if you've come to faith in Him, there is neither Jew nor Greek. The Jew and Gentile distinction has been eliminated. It's no longer there. You're in Christ. Now notice what he also says, there is neither slave nor free. So no longer is there the distinction, if you would, of, of, of being a slave or being a free individual. You're in Christ. Notice he also says that there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he's, he's indicating here that we are, we are made one in Christ. We are all on equal footing before God by virtue of having come to Christ by faith. And whether you are slave or free, whether you are a male or a female, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you all come by way of the cross. And someone has said the cross is the great leveling field where all, both small and great, come by the same way to God. Why? Because we are all sinful people. That is the lot of humanity apart from Christ. So, uh, the, this, this, as I said, the gospel is given to both slave and to free equally. Uh, and... If the gospel message, in answering this question of why was slavery not called for to be eradicated, number three, if the gospel called for believing slaves, notice that believing slaves to rise up and rebel, this would give proof or provide fodder to those who said the gospel is destructive to society and makes people's enemies of the state. You also have to uh, keep in mind as well that slavery did exist in those days. And what would you say to those who could not be freed? What about those who serve in difficult positions and cannot leave? How are they going to respond in their situation as Christ followers? And one last thought along these lines. 
let me just say that the gospel, in fact, was the catalyst that brought about the end of slavery in many contexts. And this was brought about ultimately as individuals come to faith in Christ and have their hearts and their minds transformed, resulting in slavery being eradicated and seen for the destruction and evil that it could and, and, and in fact really was. Now, hear me. I am not suggesting that the Bible teaches slavery as an acceptable practice or way of life. But in this context of 1 Peter, what he is addressing is this. How is the believer to live and conduct oneself in a fallen world even where slavery exists? Especially if you're the one that's the slave. Well, let's look at uh, what Peter says here in 1 Peter 2, 18-20. He says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good, and consider it, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. Let's begin by looking at uh, these uh, verses uh, together. And let me just say, if after the conclusion of this message you are unclear of, of what I'm trying to communicate to you or you come, around, come away with an impression that is maybe mistaken, at least from your perspective in the way I'm handling Scripture, please come and talk to me because I might be looking at things from a perspective and missing something and maybe you're misunderstanding me as well, but please hear me carefully in what we share together today around these, these words. First thing I, I, I notice here when I look at this text is the verse word in verse 18, slaves. I did not realize that this, but the, the, the word that, that Peter uses is not the typical word of doulos, which was used for common slaves in that culture and in that time. The word that he uses, and it's found only four times in the New Testament, is the word oiketes, oiketes. It's interesting because the root of that, oiketes, is the word for house. And, it, and this word is better understood as servants as opposed to slaves. Most versions, the King James, New King James, ESV, NASB and Liberty, uh, uh, the, the Legacy Standard Bible, all translate that word servants. And it can be understood with the idea, as one person says, is one who is in the same household. Interestingly, and I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know this as well, that the, the Latin translation of this New Testament verse uses the word domesticus, from which we get house servants or the, the term domestics, or people who serve. Uh, it, it a little bit is contrasted with the concept of doulos, that's translated slave, where a person uh, willingly serves or is put in a position where they are indentured to serve and have no choice. 
Interestingly, just uh, by way of some other scriptures where this is used, Jesus used that word of, of oiketes, this servant concept, when he says, Luke 16, 13, no one can serve two masters. It's also used by uh, Luke in describing Cornelius, who was a Gentile, who sent his servants, his household servants, to seek after Peter. And ultimately, through Peter, uh, this man Cornelius heard the gospel. Paul said in Romans 14.4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? And, and the idea behind that is that these were household servants being addressed, and these household servants uh, lived fairly normal uh, lives, if you would. And in a lot of contexts, they were individuals who had sold themselves into a, a period of service for a period of time. Barnes, who wrote a commentary back in the 1800s, uh, indicated that this concept of being a servant was an individual who volley, voluntarily hired themselves out to be such. Now, you might say to yourself, but uh, in, a, in a society such as Rome or any other society where, where slavery uh, might exist or this type of servitude, isn't the, st the structure in society open to abuse and mistreatment of others? And the answer to that is absolutely. Human nature being fallen and sinful, the answer is yes. There can be abuses. There are abuses today in the structures that exist within our culture and in our society. But you might ask yourself the question, but what possible relevance or application does this have to me? After all, we live in the 21st century. We don't have necessarily household servants or, or slaves in any form that we know of. So, so what could possibly be the application uh, for you and for me today? Well, let me suggest to you, as does Grudem, and I had this idea before Grudem, uh, I checked his commentary, so we're on the same page, so to speak. But just let me read his little quote. He writes, quote, um, The word employee though not conveying the idea of absence of freedom, does reflect the economic status and skill level of these ancient slaves better than do the other words servant or slave convey today. So in other words, t take, take the text and where it says slave and master and think about it in this context in our modern day, employee and employer. And if you do that, it will, it will help you. And it will help us to understand and even apply this text here this morning. And let me just say this before we go further. If believers, and they were, in this first century were slaves and had no real freedom and were called upon by God to do their work with fidelity and with excellence, how much more so the believer in Jesus Christ today who is employed and serves in his or her job. In other words, Peter is saying for believers, one of the ways that we serve Christ is to view our job through the lens of knowing Jesus Christ. 
So let's look at this together. Verse 18. He says, servants, submit yourselves. Now notice that this is an act of your will. This is a choice that you make to your masters. In other words, to those who are over you. Or if you would, to those who employ you. And you're to do so with all respect. Uh, respect for their authority. Uh, respect for the position that someone may hold over you in terms of a job situation and a working situation in that way. We all have in some context in our jobs and in our work a person or individual who is our manager, our supervisor, our team leader, our director. And the believer in Jesus Christ is called to be under the authority of those who are in authority over you in those roles. And you're to, to do that with respect. So let me ask the question. As those who are employed and have managers, supervisors, team leaders, directors, people who are over you, do you criticize those who are in those roles and talk behind their back? Just something to think about. Um, interestingly, Paul said a lot about this servant and master relationship, and he did so very clearly in Colossians chapter 3. And I just want to have you turn back here for a moment. Colossians chapter 3, and look at verse 22 with me. Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly master in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. We all have probably seen the, the TV series, it's no longer on, but The Office, you know. And, you know, it make, sometimes in those, in those storylines, you know, it made the people that worked in that office made themselves look busy when really they're just goofing off because somebody was looking over their shoulder. Are, are you that way with the, the job and where you're employed? That, that you respect those in authority over you and you do your work as unto the Lord with excellence, with, with skill, when you're being watched only? Or do you do that at all times because you know the Lord is looking over your shoulder? In fact, verse 23, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Um, in other words... You know, as, as the saying goes, uh, put in a day's work for a day's pay. Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Boy, that kind of changes your perspective on work, doesn't it? You say, but I'm not working in a, in a ministry setting. I'm not working in a church or a parachurch organization. Paul's not addressing that in this context. He's talking about in everyday life whatever your job might be. So you serve French fries at McDonald's. Or you're responsible as a doctor or nurse for open heart surgery. 
You're, you're to do whatever your job might be, however you're employed. You're to do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. Notice verse 24, because God is keeping note and you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ who you're serving. I think it was C.S. Lewis who, who made the statement that what is the difference between the secular and the sacred? And I think his answer to that question in particular was the motivation for why you do it. Is your motivation that you're serving the Lord in what you're doing? And you say, but all I'm doing is providing a service. Yes, but that is a service that in your mind and in your heart you're doing as unto the Lord. That kind of changed the perspective sometimes of our work environment in that way. Ephesians chapter 6, I know I'm out of Peter's writings, but Paul says so much about this that I, I wanted to just point out different things. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 where again, Paul addresses in this context, Ephesians 6 and verse 5, slaves, and he says, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. But you say, wait a minute, my manager is a scoundrel. He, he's, not, he's not one worthy of respect. Yes, but he's in a position that deserves your respect. And he says here, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. That sounds familiar like what he said in Colossians. But like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And this is kind of interesting because even though Paul, Peter doesn't address it, Paul also says, what about the masters? What about the employers? You're, you're, you're putting all this on the worker. What about the ones in management? What about the leaders? What about the ones who, who are doing the employing? Don't, isn't there a word for them? Yes. And notice what he says. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them since you know that it is he who is both their master and yours in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. You know, you need to do your job well as unto the Lord as well knowing that you have a master over you who is Christ when you're in that role of authority and position. Now, notice what Peter says. Back to, to, back to 1 Peter. So what, what does this say here to you and me as, as Christ followers? Well, I think that when we put it in our modern uh, understanding and context, it would suggest to us that if we're employed and we're... A, a believer in Jesus Christ, we should do our best as unto Him. Some of the ways that we do that is by being on time. And wouldn't you know that I was late coming into the service this morning? But being on time. I worked for Wegmans years ago in the produce department, and I was amazed at how many people were on the schedule to come in at a certain time, and they'd just sort of stroll in whenever they felt like it. I don't know, maybe that's just the norm today, but you should be on time. A second thing is you should do your best. That's another thing. I was, happened to be in Walmart here about a month or two ago, and I kid you not, I don't know if this is the way that they maybe do things in communicating to their employees, but every single person that I saw that had a vest on that said, 
Walmart was walking around looking at their phones. They weren't doing anything. They weren't, they weren't facing the shelves. They weren't putting out product. They, weren't, they were just walking around kind of like this. You know? And it was like, excuse me, I need some help here because I did need help looking for something. And it's like they're, not, they're, they're in their own little world. What about being trustworthy? If you're handed a responsibility, are you trustworthy with that responsibility? Are you honest? Are you dependable? And do you seek to maybe avoid criticism where everybody else is... You stay out of that fray. I'm amazed how many times I'm in a context where it's a grocery store or something else and I hear employees and all they're doing is, I had to come in because that person called off. And that's the kind of stuff they're talking about in the context of those who they're there to serve in their given role. Or, you know that the manager expects me to X, Y, Z? I mean, is, is that reflective of, of what a Christian should be like who is wanting to do his best as under the Lord? It was said one time years ago when James Dobson was still uh, the director of Focus on the Family and Speaking, he was talking about this whole issue of um, employment. And he says he knew of people who owned businesses who said, they are not going to purposely, necessarily hire Christians any longer because they seem to be the most slackers that they had working for a Christian. And notice this. Peter says back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18 that you are to show this respect not only to those who are good and considerate, not only to those who are good people to work for, saying, I love my job, I love my manager, I love the person that, that gave me this job. Think of Michael Scott working for him. <laughs> You'd probably love working for him, maybe you wouldn't. But notice that Peter says here, we're, we're, to, we're to be submitted and in that context to the Lord and those over us, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And I asked Jonathan last night for an example of, of, of a contrast between a Michael Scott kind of manager and, and, and a harsh one. And here's the two that we came up with. If you know the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have seen that? You know what I'm talking about. Quite a, quite a, quite a few of you. You know that there's Mr. Potter. And he's in a, he's in a wheelchair and... You know, he has his servant who's pushing him around. He's, he's slapping on his thing. Look sharp! Look sharp! How would you like to work for a person like that? Another, another example might be, uh, and again, it's another classic, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Scrooge. How would you like to work for Ebenezer Scrooge? Bah humbug. You know, worried about using too much candles because you don't want to spend the money to... Think, think in that context when he says, even to those who are harsh. Well, doesn't that give me justification to protest and do this and do that and to not do my best because after all, that person's a scoundrel. 
But notice what he says here, verse 19. For this is commendable. And I'll say more about that word here in a moment because it comes up again. If a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. Kind of interesting that one translation says that God is pleased when you bear up and you are, you are suffering in a context. You, you're, you, you get the blame for failure. You get chewed out. You're called into the office. You're called onto the carpet because of something that happened that wasn't your fault. And you know what? You bear up under that. Why? Because you're mindful of God. You're conscious of God. And you could say, maybe you can't say it to your manager or to your, those in authority over you, but you could say before God in your heart, before God, I have a clear conscience. I did what was right. But now I might be suffered for it. The New Living Translation says, it this way, for God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. Why are you doing this? Because you're a Christian. Because you know God through Jesus Christ. And, and knowing Him means that you will do what is right in your profession and in your work. Let me just say, this means you will not doctor the books because the boss asked you to. You will not use e legally obtained information to give the company an advantage. You will not lie to clients about the products that you might make or sell. You will not cover for the failure or incompetence of fellow workers or even for your boss. You do not allow anything that violates the word of God or your conscience to be realized. If you're being asked to do something illegal or something wrong that's contrary to scripture, you stand your ground. You might say to yourself, well, what if I lose my job because I do the right thing? Well, let me just say this. Do you really believe that God is in control and sovereign? And that he won't take care of you if you did in fact the right thing and were disciplined or even let go because of it? Because Peter says here, one of the reasons that, that this structure and this relationship exists in the work environment is verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? In other words, if you did mess up, if you did do wrong and, and you're called on the carpet and you're disciplined for it and, and you have to endure that, that's not to your credit. God isn't necessarily saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You got what you deserved. Let me say this for an example. If the boss says to you, you come in late again, I'm going to dock your pay, say $100, and you come in late again, and you say, well, I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian. No, you're being, you're being disciplined because you were late. That's not commendable before God. But he puts the contrast here, verse 20. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Here's that word again, commendable. Did you know that that's the, the Greek word charis from which we translate it grace? This is grace with God. I like what uh, 
uh, one commentator uh, said, H.A. Ironside, when he says here that this is grace active in your life, enabling one to bear up under ju uh, unjust suffering. God is pleased when we at times endure things that are unfair and unjust, and we do so in a way that reflects Christ. And you, you might say to yourself, where do we see that Christ ever endured something unjust? Well, keep reading on, and next week we're going to look at one who suffered unjustly, and the purposes of God in salvation were realized as a result. One last example here for myself, and I, don't, I do not take credit for this as though somehow I've got it figured out. But as I, as I mentioned here, uh, I worked for Wegmans uh, for a number of years in Erie. And I may have shared this before, but my attitude wasn't very good when I worked there. I left the pastorate. I was working full-time in a grocery store. And Wegmans was a great company to work for. Don't, don't misunderstand me. They were, they were great. If you ever want a job with, and a career in the grocery store industry, Wegmans is, is one of the companies I would recommend. But my attitude wasn't always best. I... I didn't like getting up at five in the morning to start, you know, sorting through produce and, and doing things like that. And, and I, I can remember at the time also thinking about, why did I leave the pastorate? Why, why, did, I, why did I leave the pastorate? Why, why am I here? And I can remember praying in those times of arranging the fruit and different things and making orange juice and coring pineapples. You know, I did that for 40 hours a week for couple of years. I wasn't really happy there and it showed. In fact, my, my department with the, with the juice and the fresh fruits and all that got an award because we made the most money for the department so they took a picture of me standing in front of the pineapple display. My friends gave me the, the nickname Pastor Pineapple by the way. And I was standing there, and I, I, Marty probably remembers this. They took a picture of me, and they posted it on, on, in the produce department of the, the section of the department that made money. And my picture was there, and there's a scowl on my face. God had to deal with my heart, because I wasn't right. Finally, when I was brought under the conviction of the Spirit that I wasn't doing my best, I wasn't living according to the Scriptures, I was being a bad witness for Christ in this context, I started to straighten up my approach and my doings. And I can remember the produce manager, Jerry, said to me at one point, he says, I want to talk to you. And so he called me over and we were talking at his desk and he says, something's different about you. He says, I've noticed that you're, you're doing your job a little bit better. What's, what's going on? And I said, Jerry, I come to realize that it's my job to make you look good as produce manager. That was it. I didn't go on his whole diatribe of, you know, all that. Lo and behold, not because of me, but Jerry's wife was a member of the First Alliance Church in Erie, Pennsylvania. And ultimately, Jerry came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that my change in attitude had anything to do with his coming to faith in Christ. However, I realize that in that context, I am there under employment by the Wegmans Corporation, Wegmans family. I am responsible to a manager, and I am there to do my best. And in fact, their motto was, every day you get our best. 
And I had to learn that firsthand. And I think that that fits in with what Peter is saying to those who are in a context where they're serving and it may not be pleasant. It may not be easy. It may be very difficult. But you have the resource of Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and the work of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God that can help you to do your job as unto Him with excellence and ultimately for the glory of God. May our work ethic be positive as a witness for Jesus Christ and may we live out this portion to the glory of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together in your word this morning. We know, O oh Lord, that in our work as individuals, we don't always find uh, it pleasant or even find the satisfaction that we long for. But Lord, you call us first and foremost, to a relationship with yourself and to respond to our given uh, circumstances in light of who you are and our relationship to you. So, Father, it is my prayer for myself and for all who are in the hearing of this word today that we would once again give ourselves to Christ, that we would seek to, to live for him in each circumstance and in particular in the jobs and in the work that we have to do. May we do our work in such a way, Lord, that it, it really reflects the character and nature of God in that we are trustworthy, we are honest, we do what we can, but with a dependence upon you, Lord, because Apart from you, we can do nothing. Yet we know through Christ we can do all things. So help us, Father, to, to, to live and to work in such a way as to glorify Christ. And give us your strength, O Lord, to live out the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.